You are listening to the first sermon of a series entitled Breaking Forth, Studies from the Book of Acts, preached in September of 2008 at Hocassin Baptist Church. And now, Pastor John. We're starting a new sermon series this morning. We completed our sermon series, Perfecting Ourselves to Death, last Sunday. And we're starting a new series this morning entitled Breaking Forth, and we're going to look at what God says about the church, the basic tenets that make up the church, uh, and, and what he intends the church to be. And we'll do that for the month of September. In October, we'll proceed to, uh, to a sermon series entitled Rendered Unto, which is going to look at our God's uh, role of citizenship for us during this election season. Uh, but as we meditate on the church, I find myself thinking... Of all the churches I've been a part of in probably the past uh, 12 or 15 years, for any of you who have lived a transitory life, if you move, if you've recently or made a transition in life, you will know that churches look very different no matter where you go. There's, there's kind of, and it seems odd, because on the outside, people who are outside of the church kind of have this monolithic view of the church, like, oh, the church is this way. But those of us who are inside the church know that there is no way that the church is. You go one place and you're a member of one church and it looks one way and then you move somewhere else and it looks totally different. My wife and I, uh, I was in the service for a while and when I was in the Air Force, I got stationed at Davis-Montham Air Force Base in Tucson, Arizona. And my wife and I, uh, we hadn't been married for very long and we hadn't really figured out what is our yeah, denomination or, or what, what have you. So when we would arrive at a, a new station, we would generally make the rounds, which those of you who have moved, you probably know this kind of six-month ordeal to figure out what is the right church for you. Uh, and so we were making the rounds. The challenge is when you're in the military is if you're only going to be somewhere for nine months, you can't spend six months looking, uh, or you'll look your way you know, out. So we were looking, and at the time, we would make a habit of visiting the local Lutheran church. My wife grew up at Grace Lutheran right down the street, and so the Lutheran churches were always in the rounds. And we went to this Lutheran church on this particular Sunday. It was right after the Super Bowl Sunday, um, maybe the Sunday after. And we're in this Lutheran church, and the pastor steps up to start giving his message, and he starts talking about, he gives a Super Bowl joke, which, you know, that's understandable. You'll probably get a Super Bowl joke in January from me. But he's given the Super Bowl joke about two teams that were not in the Super Bowl. And it was bizarre, because I'm thinking, did this guy not watch the Super Bowl? I mean, if you're going to tell a joke, get the teams right. But he's telling the Super Bowl joke about what I, I know one of the teams, I, I think I recollect the other, it's about the Vikings and the Broncos. He's telling the story about the Vikings and the Broncos. Neither team was in the, the Super Bowl, or the Olympics, but neither team was in the Super Bowl, nor have they been in quite a while, and he's telling this joke about, about these teams, and... Uh, my wife and I are like, what is going on here? But if we looked around, we, everybody else had nods of affirmation. As if we had been in the Twilight Zone. They're nodding, oh yeah. And so the, the punchline of this joke ends up being how good the Vikings are. and some funny joke about the Vikings over the Broncos. And only once I heard the uproarious laughter at this Viking joke did I realize what had happened. I was in a snowbird church. In Tucson, Arizona, everybody in that church but us was from Minnesota. They were down for the winter, and it was one massive snowbird church of retirees, and my wife and I. 
And I realized, man, how different are churches? Because you could ask me a, a million times, what do you think would happen? And I never would have said that would be my Tucson Lutheran experience. Would be to hear a Vikings joke. But churches are that way. And some of the differences in churches are differences of style and preference. Style and preference, like, do you want to meet in a gym or a sanctuary? What kind of chairs? Fancy church, simple church. Do you serve coffee? If so, do you sell coffee? Is it quality coffee or instant coffee? <laughs> These are the major issues that the church wrestles with today. But there's other ones. What kind of music? How fancy is your dress? What kind of sermons do you hear? Do you have... PowerPoint or hymnals, all of these things. These are issues of style and preference. And I'm not here to say that they're not important issues, and I'm definitely not here to say that me or the pastors and staff before me have not prayed over these issues. They're spiritual issues, and they require thought and some real reflection as to what is the Lord's will in our community. But I think you would agree with me that they're of lesser significance than other things. They're fairly preferential. But there's other kinds of differences, too. There's Differences that surface merely because of the personalities within the church. So here's an example. If you take two life groups or two small groups in our own church of almost exactly the same background, same Christian beliefs, same ages, roughly the same kinds of jobs, I mean, essentially carbon copies of one another, I can guarantee you that you might run across wildly different life groups. All on paper, they look identical. You know, bankers, chemists, bankers, chemists, on paper. But once you, once you break it down, when their personalities surface, all of a sudden, you realize that they can be wildly different because personalities of believers create the character of the church. And so, despite our preferences, there's this other kind of driving shaper of our church community, which is who we are, as, as far as our personalities. And that's not bad or good, that's just is. We can't root it out. Right? And I don't have any desire to kind of have a kind of homogeneous community where I say good morning and everybody responds in that monotone, you know, I robot, good morning. That's not the goal. Right? The personalities, God celebrates himself through our different personalities and, and the struggles and that, those kinds of things. And so that's good, but it's a source of, it's a source of difference. And it ha- if it happens within life groups, that's what partly explains how it happens so egregiously among churches even in the same area of the same denomination, that we are in our own embedded geographic area, right? We have our own ethnic lines that are around here, our own social lines around here, different sides of the track around here, and that alone, the context alone, will breed different churches. It's not necessarily bad, it's not necessarily good, but it is. And so you have preference and you have personality. And those those just are, they always will be, and they are. But I don't think you and I would say those are major issues of substance. But there is a third kind of quality of a church that is an issue of substance, a difference of substance. And this is the kind of characteristic that when you or I are sitting in a church and you hear something said, it makes you in the back of your mind ask this question, is this a valid church? Issues of substance are the kinds of things that either through the preaching or even the worship music that you hear or the way things are prayed, that make us ask, is there something that's significantly different of substance in one community over another? Because there are many people that call themselves the church but may not be the church. And there are issues of substance 
that shape whether we are the church. And that is essentially going to be our study for the month of September, is what are these issues of substance? What are these kind of categorically important elements that make a church? What are the ingredients of the church? Like the picture behind, like a plant needs air, soil, water, and sun to grow. What are those ingredients for a successful church? If we were going to plant the church, what would we need? And so in the month of September, we're going to look at these four ingredients. We're going to look at truth this morning. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the work of the Spirit. Then we're going to look at the interaction of believers with one another. And finally, the growing or blossoming nature of the church. Those are the four elements we're going to look at. But this morning, we're going to focus our attention on truth. So if you will, please pray with me. We'll get started. Heavenly Father, we pray your blessings on this message, on the way it's spoken and the way it's received. We, we pray that this message would not be seen as a singular event, Lord, but as part of a broader sense of worship among our believers that started before they came here Sunday and that continues long after they depart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I say truth, <clears throat> this is one of those coy responses. If you ever get in like a pretty flat argument with somebody about you have one opinion and they have another, usually like the most, one, uh, one kind of response that might come out is, well, I believe in the truth. You go ahead and do what you want to do, but I believe in the truth. Right? And that's not what I'm suggesting this morning. I'm not suggesting that the Christian church believes in the truth and every other church believes in the not truth. Every person who worships believes in that what they're worshiping is true. Right? So there's the Buddhists aren't saying, well, we don't believe in truth, and we're avoiding the truth, and that hence we're Buddhists. They're saying we have pursued the truth through Buddhism. Islam says the same thing, that the truth is Islam. So what I'm not suggesting is that Christianity is unique in its claim that it, it is the truth. It is not at all unique in that claim. And that's not really a, a substantive kind of characteristic of the church. What I am claiming this morning that is quite unique is that the Christian church anchors its truth in a historical event. That what makes Christianity different from other beliefs is that we actually think it's significant that something really happened in time and space. That there's, there's more than a feeling, there's more than principles to live by, there's more than broad sayings like love your neighbor and love the Lord. Those are not enough to anchor and root the church for survival. That the church is dependent upon real historical truth. It had to really happen. A historian has to be able to open a timeline, and in the Christian world, they should be able to put their finger down, and something happened there that is significant. It changed all humanity. And that was what makes Christianity, and Judeo-Christianity for that matter, unique from other religions. And so that's going to be what we're going to do this morning, is we're going to kind of investigate that. And we're going to investigate this this whole month through the early chapters of Acts. Because any time, particularly at the scholarly level, any time you want to talk about church, what does church look like? What ought a church look like? Somebody, it's, it's always a race to be the first one to say this among scholars, somebody's going to say, well, what did the early church do? There's this thought that if we can get to the early church, if we can kind of get past all the noise of our generations and go thousands and thousands of years back, we can get to this early church which is free from impurities, which is close to Christ, which is in the handbasket of the apostles, where everything was fine and happy and righteousness was gleaming like a city on a hill. And if we can just find that church, we'll know what to do. And so generally when we talk church, 
In every book you read, they'll be like, well, let's get back to the early church. The problem is we know almost nothing about the early church. We, by the time details of church surface, you're about 250 A.D., 300 A.D., and by that time, the church is as diluted and problematic as we are today. It's as fractured and diverse. We can't even get agreement as to what did baptism really look like in the early church, because by the time we, people write about this is how we do baptism, there's conflicting opinions in the church. By the time we can really understand communion, there's already divergent views of how to best do communion. By the time we understand, do they worship on Sunday? There's already people who are worshiping on other days. And by the time they've written down their, their, their Apostles' Creed, they're writing it down because there's a host of divergent beliefs that are forcing it to the surface. And so this area of purity, where we want to know what was the real church that walked away from the ascension of Christ into the blossoming of the Spirit of Pentecost, what did that look like? There is so little known. But what we can see and what we'll look at during this month, are the very few major ingredients that make church. So this month, you're not going to get details. You're not going to get some kind of plan for the future of what church ought to look like. You're going to get very broad principles that are preached and exercised by a people who did not know they were in a church. These people were Jews. They were good Jews. And the gospel had come alive and was exploding out of their community, and they didn't know what to do. There was no program There was nothing like that. There was no doctrines written down. We don't know any of that. All we know is the major driving principles behind church in the early chapters of Acts. And so I I like it because it's it's like a clean Petri dish for us to do our damage. So with that said, if you'll open up your Bible to Acts 1, I'm going to give us three kind of reasons why, as we pursue this question of why is historic truth important to the church. We're going to kind of explore that idea with three different observations, three different perspectives of why is history important to the Christian church. And the first point we'll look at this morning is that history is important to the church because the, the, the historical truth really mattered to the authors of Scripture. So at least in our investigation, the first thing we should notice is the people who wrote the Bible really did care what actually happened. It wasn't a small thing to them, it was a big thing to them. They really cared what happened. And so... That being said, we're going to, well, I'm going to read in Luke, but you guys can stay open to Acts chapter 1. This guy named Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the Gospel of Acts. And we call it two different books, but really you could think of it as Luke 1 and Luke 2. And so when he writes Luke 1, and this is why I'm going to read it, he kind of gives a broader introduction to the purpose in writing in the first place. These are letters written to a guy named Theophilus, who must have been a Greek friend, and he's writing this book, this, this letter of Luke and this letter of Acts to Theophilus for this following reason. So I'll read Luke, the first four verses, and then I'll read Acts, the first three. But this is what the, apostle, or the, the writer Luke says. He writes this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the very first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seems good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Did you hear that? He's writing to Theophilus so that Theophilus may know with certainty 
these things about which Luke's about to write, these historical events. It is important to Luke that Theophilus knows what really happened in time and space. It is not sufficient to Luke to tell Theophilus to love others, to do good, to be nice, and to go to church. He says you need to know what actually happened. In Luke 2, or otherwise known as Acts, he starts this way. In Acts chapter 1, I'll read the first three verses. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Once again, Luke starts the book of Acts saying, this is about history. Many convincing proofs. He appeared to them over 40 days, teaching them and, and, and subscribing them the words. Jesus Christ was seen again after the dead. Luke wants you to start Acts knowing that Christ is resurrected and is, has continued to interact with the people. And the entire story of Acts starts from right there. So we can see that for, at the very minimum, Luke, what actually happened is important. But it's more than just Luke. You and I have parallel accounts of the history of Christ for a reason. The apostles thought it was so important that they didn't just give us Luke, they gave us Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of which make truth claims. They didn't just give us carbon copies, they are different perspectives from different people on the same events, so that we might verify and cross-reference. Not only that, we have letters from Paul and other people from around who make testimony and testify to the eyewitness accounts. So in 1 Corinthians, there's a place where Paul will write that over 500 people have seen the risen Christ, of whom some have passed away, but some are still living. He's writing to the church of Corinth going, if you really doubt the testimony, there's 500 some odd people that you could go find. The truth matters. The truth matters to these writers and the authorship. And our scriptures here are testimony to that. And it isn't just a New Testament phenomenon. It's an Old Testament phenomenon. The whole reason we have the whole Bible is because the Hebrew people felt the same way about truth. It mattered historically and spiritually that the Jews were in bondage in Egypt and were brought out by God's power. That was historically and spiritually significant to their life. It is spiritually and historically significant to life that there is a promised land promised by God for them, and they know the borders. God's word has given them the geographic borders. They know that from the area of Dan to the river of Beersheba in the south, that is their land. That's historically and spiritually significant. It is significant to them that they were brought into exile. It is significant to them that they were allowed to return. It is significant to them that there's a kingship through the line of David. And it is historically significant to them that God has promised a Messiah through that line. Those are points in history that they can point to to say our promises of God are anchored in actual events. But what does it mean to be important? Just to say truth is important doesn't really answer our question. It gets us a little closer. It convinces us that, yeah, it's right. It was important from the beginning. But why is it important? Well, let's push a little farther and see if we can work that out. Here's a second way that we know it's important. It is clear to us that the truths of Scripture, or the truths of what actually happened, the historical truth, was important not only to the authors of Scripture, 
but also to the leaders of the church, of the most early church. One of the few things we can identify is how significantly important the truth, the historical truth was to the early church. So I'll continue to read. I'll pick up in verse 21. What's happened, in case you don't know, is there's, there was this 12th apostle, his name was Judas. He was a crummy guy, he betrayed Christ, and then he committed suicide. So now the apostle's quiver is down by one arrow. And so Peter stands up one day and he says, it's time for us to appoint a 12th apostle, right? There's this purity in the number 12. There's this idea of the 12 tribes. And so Peter says, while they're waiting for the Lord to act, let's assign a 12th apostle. It's during this parenthesis between the Lord ascending and anything happening. The Lord's about to, he goes into heaven and he says, don't do anything. Like, don't get it on until something happens. It doesn't tell him what's going to happen, really. And so they're waiting. And while they're waiting, they say, let's appoint this new 12th apostle. Now, before we read it, I want to ask you, if you were going to appoint your 12th apostle, what would be his job description? Any, any? No, I'm just kidding. What would, this is what I, I'll tell you what I think. That way we don't have to do the uncomfortable hand-raising thing. I'll tell you what I think, and I imagine it's probably pretty similar to some of you. If I had to pick a 12th apostle... I would go after key attributes that are like significant for evangelism. This guy would be a good speaker. He would be an influential person. He would be brave and courageous because of what's about to happen. He would, he would know his Jewish history. He'd be a solid, biblically-based Jew because that's where Christianity is coming from. So I would have these, at least those four attributes. This guy would have to speak, He'd be influential, intelligent. He could wrestle with a good argumenter. That's a word. <laughs> Clearly, I would not make the cut. But that would be, in my mind, this is what Peter says. So Peter stands up and he says, we need a 12th apostle, and here's his description. You ready for the attributes of the 12th apostle? Verse 21. Therefore, he says, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Peter doesn't say he has to speak well. Peter doesn't say he has to be influential. Peter doesn't say he has to have Roman citizenship so he can travel freely from country to country. Peter says the apostle, who will be the 12th apostle, has to have seen Christ being baptized, has to have walked with Christ through his entire life and been eyewitnesses to the miracles and signs and wonders that Christ has done has to have seen Christ been tortured and crucified and resurrected by God, and has to have seen him in his resurrected state. That is what is significant to the apostles. It makes you ask, why? Why is that so significant? Well, one reason is, is the apostles don't have a Bible, a New Testament scripture. So when they go out, when the Spirit finally fills the church, and they go out into the land to spread the gospel... They, don't, they cannot say, it says in Matthew, blessed are the meek. They cannot say, it says in John, I am the light of the world. They cannot say, it says in Luke, blessed are the poor. They have to say, Christ said, blessed are the meek. They have to say, I was there when Christ broke the bread and the fishes and multiplied it for the thousands and thousands. I saw it. I ate that meal. And I can tell you by name the people that were there with me. I was an eyewitness, and I experienced it. For some reason, that is absolutely essential in this early church. They say the apostles have to have been there and seen it. They have to know 
What actually happened? I saw Christ rise. I saw the risen Lord, is what they have to be able to say. I saw him. He ate with us. To be an apostle, you have to say that. Now, if you have to say that, if that's the one criteria that Peter brings forth and lets the Lord sort everything else out with the choosing of lots, and that puts it in perspective, right? Peter says, what's the one thing we need and lets the rest of the Lord? If that's the one thing in choosing the 12th apostle, it makes truth pretty important. If it's important to the authors, so important that they say this way you should know with certainty, with eyewitness accounts, the truth, then we go, that's pretty important. And if the apostles say, to be an apostle, you have to have been eyewitness to all of that, we should at least know that the truth is, the eyewitness truth is important. But it still doesn't tell us why it's important. And I don't think we can answer why it's important until the gospel starts to get shared. So we'll go to our third point here, which is, our third and final point this morning is that the truth is significant. What really happened historically is significant not only to the authors who wrote it, not only to the leaders who planted the church, but for the preachers who preached it. And with that, if you'll open your Bibles to Acts again, Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read to you the very first gospel ever translated from one human to another. The first time that the, go- the fully realized gospel of Christ from a spirit-filled person was ever preached, this is how it sounds. It's Peter. It's Pentecost. So when Pentecost means it's like a big Jewish Lollapalooza, all the Jews from all over Europe, uh, Europe and the Mediterranean, they come to Israel. They come to Jerusalem and they sit there. So they're all Jewish in faith but they're not Jewish in ethnicity. So there are Egyptian Jews, and there are Greek Jews, and there are Roman Jews, and there are Spanish Jews, and there are Italian Jews, and there are Bithynian Jews, and Galatian Jews, and they're all there, and, they, and they're, they're fulfilling their biblical responsibility to visit the temple, but they don't necessarily all commune together and speak in the same tongue. And when the Spirit enters Peter and the apostles, they start to preach, and when they preach, everybody who hears it, hears it in their native tongue, and it is awesome. And this is what Peter says. I'll be reading verses 2, starting in verses 22, and then I'll, I'll skip around, but I'll lead you with me. Verses 22, he says this, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it is impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He continues his gospel in verse 32. He says, God raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And in verse 36, he says this, Let therefore all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Savior. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter, Brothers, what shall we do? This is Peter's reply. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord your God will call. The first time the gospel's ever preached, and does Peter open his mouth and say, God has a plan for your life. He wants to make you, he wants to bring peace to your life. He has hopes. He knows what you're going to be when you grow up. He knows what you're going to do. Put your hopes on him. He doesn't say that. He gives a history report. He says, there is a man named Jesus who came to this world, and he says this. He says, God accredited to him through the working of signs and miracles and wonders. He's, essentially, he's saying to the people, you saw the power of God working through this man. In fact, when the Pharisees indict Christ, they don't indict him for being a fake. They say he's a witch. They say, it's not that they don't say, he, he didn't heal that man. They don't ever say that. They say, by whose power did you heal that man? When you read the pagan reports of Christ, he's generally referred to as a sorcerer. Because it was generally, it was widely believed that he had power. And so the writers, Peter here says, God accredited himself to Jesus through the working of the signs and wonders, which you witnessed. He said that right in the passage. And then he says something else. It doesn't say God has a plan for your life. He says, by the way, this very Jesus whom God anointed with the power of God, you killed. You crucified Jesus. That's the gospel, according to Peter. Now, doubtless there are people in the room going, ah, that's Peter. (laughs) Peter's pretty broad brush. Or they're saying, well, that's just one kind of gospel. Let me, let me share with you the second gospel ever preached through the mouth of man, ever. It happens to be in Acts 3. So if you'll turn there, it's Acts 3, verse 11. On this occasion, by this point, Peter and the apostles are filled with the Spirit. He and John are walking to the temple. They enter through the gate called Beautiful, and there's a lame man who had been lame for four decades. Luke is, by the way, is, is attentive to that. He wants us to know that this man has always been here, and has always been lame. So the town would have recognized him as the lame guy by the gate beautiful. So Peter walks by, and you can imagine this, uh, this beggar, he's at the gate beautiful, going, you know, alms for the poor, or whatever that is in Aramaic. You know, shalom. Right? And what does Peter say? He looks down at this man, he goes, riches and, and, and money I cannot give you, but what I can say is in the name of Jesus Christ, Stand. And the man stands, right? And what happens after that? There's this throng of people that get drawn to come see what happened. Peter just did, by the way, what Christ had done. The wonders and the miracles and the science. He just did it. He heals this man through the power of Jesus Christ. This group of people gather around him, and they gather in this wing of the temple called Solomon's Colonnade. And this is the gospel that Peter gives. This is the second time the gospel's ever shared in the history of the church that we have recorded. I'll start in verse 11. While the beggar held on to Peter and John. I mean, how cool is that? While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, 
But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him now that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. And then he says this, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying this, that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he might send Christ. The second time we see the gospel, what does Peter say? Peter says this, men of Israel, listen up. What you just saw happened by Christ, the power of Christ, who, by the way, was the man that you crucified. He even heightens it more. He says, not only did you crucify him, but your attempts to blame it on Pilate are futile because Pilate wanted to release him. So he says, not only are you guilty of his blood, but Pilate is not. Even though Pilate would have released him, you demanded Jesus' blood. Even though, even though it meant releasing an, a guilty murderer, you demanded the blood of Jesus. You killed the author of life. Somehow that is historically significant to Peter. And I would say this, if Peter were here today, and if he were preaching to you today, I dare say he would stare out and say, in a, and at least in a spiritual sense, you killed our Jesus. You nailed him to the cross because if your sins he's there, that is the gospel that's preached from Peter. It is historically significant for us to realize that Jesus Christ hung on a cross for the sins of mankind. We cannot get around. We cannot preach a full gospel unless we are bound to that historical precept that Jesus Christ was crucified and that he was resurrected by God for our salvation, for our rescue of our sins, and for us to say that God has a plan for our lives and to end it there is to not preach a full gospel and is to render ourselves an immaterial church. To preach, to preach any gospel that strays from the historic truth that Christ was crucified by us, for us, is to stray from truth altogether. I got enough time to do one more. <clears throat> Acts 4. So there's a big stir that rises. He heals this guy. There's this throng of people in Solomon's carronade. You can hear people going, Jesus, Jesus, right? People are coming to the Lord, swooning. You know, throw whatever gift you want in there, tongues and healing, it's happening. And the Sanhedrin hear about it, and they go, in our own temple, this heretic Peter is preaching Christ, whom we crucified. For crying out loud, we tried to put an end to this. So they wrestle in Peter and John. They bring him in the room, and they say, they try to bully him and intimidate him. And so this is how the intimidation works. Verse 8 of chapter 4, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, that's so awesome, says to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. I'm here to say it is by the name Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and God re resurrected, that you sit here today. That is the historic gospel. That is why historical truth matters in the church, because if we stray from that, we are no church. Where is the salvation? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, if the Christ is not resurrected, then our faith is futile. He says, you are still in your sins. And furthermore, he says, we are to be pitied above all men, because we have spent our life striving after a difficult righteousness that bears no life. We've wasted our life seeking an unattainable life. 
He says the resurrection of Christ by God is where we find our hope in salvation. The historical resurrection of God. Not the spiritual resurrection of God. Now, if you attend a Bible-preaching church, this may sound like duh, but I should let you know that at this very moment, at this very minute, there are churches in our very state, in our very land, across the country that are preaching a false gospel. You will walk in and they will have this sitting behind a pew. And they will have a cross behind a PowerPoint behind a pastor. But they are simply icons. They're comforting icons to make you think that you're aligned to some true gospel. But they do not preach a resurrected Christ. They do not preach a crucified Christ. And they do not preach salvation through repentance of sins. That is a historic necessity. There's a rise, and I'll close with these two thoughts. There is a comfort in generally holding this book and not using it. There's a comfort in looking at it as an icon. It remains an icon. It remains an edifice of truth unless we open it and we read it and we believe it. Truth is in here. I can't simply say that, uh, be so prosaic as to say, oh, well, everything in here is truth, and, and I'll tell it to you. I know that there are challenging things in here. I, mean, I believe it is true. I believe that the truth is in here, that this is the sole source of truth, but I am not so foolish as to think that it's easy to find all the time. There are times that we pursue truth relentlessly through Scripture. There are times when equal people who love Christ equally may disagree. But the difference between a Bible-believing community and one that does not believe in the authority of Scripture, is that a Bible-believing community enters the Word knowing it's true. They'll say, my, my, whether or not I find truth is a failing on my part. Whether or not I find truth is whether or not the Lord gives me discernment. But the Bible is true. A non-Bible-believing church walks in, and they look at this, and they place it beneath their already established sociological opinions about what life ought to look like. And they go to see, how does this book correspond to their version of the truth. We are told to renew our idea of the truth through Scripture. That is what truth... This is a historic book, and it is true. And so that's the first thing I'll encourage you is, as you... We're in a transitional church. Many of you will be here one season and gone the next. As you transition, as you try out churches, as you graduate into churches, I would ask yourself, is Scripture being preached faithfully? Is the historical resurrection of Christ being preached? Is the repentance of sins being preached? And if it is not, you have not walked into a church. You have walked into a community town meeting, not a church. And one last thing, I'll close with this. As we give the gospel to others, I encourage you to ask, how does your gospel sound? Because this is where our culture is. Our culture finds it very easy to tell our story. Right? Those are the buzzwords. That resonates, that resonates with me. Let me just tell you what the Lord has done for me. Right? When we go to share the gospel, it's so much easier to go approach somebody and go, well, I can't answer all the questions, but let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. And I'm not decrying that. I'm not slamming it. I want to add to it. I affirm it. What the Lord has done for you is valid, but it is not authoritative in everybody else's life. What the Lord has done to you is significant, but it is not significant necessarily in everybody else's life. What the Lord has done for you may have happened, but it may not happen in that person's life. 
You can say, the Lord has given me peace. They might not get the peace that you got. But you can say, the Lord has given me rest. They may not immediately arrive at the rest that you had. You may say, the Lord has given me prosperity. They may have poverty waiting right around the corner. Does that invalidate the gospel of Christ? Are, are you going to, by your own experience, invalidate their faith? I would say what the Lord has done for you is significant, but what the Lord has done is ultimately significant. Not what the Lord has done for me. I can say what the Lord has done for me is X, Y, and Z, but let me tell you what the Lord has done for us. He died and was resurrected for our sins. He lived the perfect life for our sins. He bore the scourges of our sins on his back so that we might live through faith. So repent, therefore, and seek Christ. That is what the Lord has done for us. It is not contextual. It's objective. So as you share your story, share it in context to the fact that it's part of a bigger story. It's the piece of a story. It's a a modern-day testimony to the fact that God is faithful, but it is not authoritative like the ultimate historical event of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. History matters. One of the pillars of our church is truth. And so I pray this week that we would grow to believe that more and more. 